The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And our sermon and message today is from verses 57 through 68. And I'll be quite honest with you, I thought that what I should do today is invert the messages and uh, preach the message that I want to preach tonight on uh, this morning, um, because the subject matter is maybe not what you think as usual for Sunday morning sermons, but we're mostly homegrown folks here, so it's not going to make much difference if I turn the sermons around and preach them at a different time. So we'll just continue with the Gospel of Matthew this morning here in the 26th chapter. And uh, this particular part of Scripture is about the trial of Jesus. Now, many of you are aware of the all the sensitivity, I guess is the word I would use, uh, of our neighborhood to the sign that we have out front. Uh, we've, we've oftentimes run in conflict with our neighborhood because of things that we put on that sign. And I'm not sure of the traffic count that passes this particular area each day. I do know that it exceeds 20,000 vehicles a day that pass by our church. And I'm sure that some of them, when they're caught by the light over here going east, that they glance over at our sign to read what's there. And today they'll see this sign that says, Justice Mocked by the Jews. And there may be some of them that don't understand that we're not talking about the current Israeli-Palestinian conflict and whether that's right or wrong and what you might think about that. But rather we're talking about uh, the trial of Jesus by a Jewish court that made the worst mockery of justice that the world has ever seen. And that's what we find here in this passage of Scripture. And these verses are really astounding, especially when you consider the Jewish Scriptures. The Old Testament is actually the foundation of American jurisprudence. Courtroom procedures and protection of the innocent, the right to a fair trial, all of that and many more practices are grounded in what was given by God in the Old Testament Scriptures to the Jewish people. Um, and it really, that part of it really makes it does make it astounding that Jesus was treated so unfairly and that he was systematically murdered, not systematically tried in this court. And that's a fact that goes against everything that's fair and right, even to the sinful mind. Now, over the course of two sermons, I want to discuss what happened in the Jewish trial. And there were actually two trials of Jesus. There was an ecclesiastical one and there was a political one. In the ecclesiastical trial, that was presided over by the high priest of Israel. And then there was a political trial that was presided over by Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea. So in these two sermons, we're, we're going to consider the ecclesiastical trial. That is the trial of the Jewish court. Now, if you look at Matthew 26, let's just stand for the reading of God's Word again, give you a chance to stretch you a little bit more. And in verse number 57, Matthew 26, verse 57, And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, we're not going to talk about that verse in 
uh, in these uh, two sermons. We're, we're saving that for a little bit later when we talk about Peter's denial of Jesus. Verse 59, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tellest whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smoteth thee? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the time we have together today. Help us as we look into your word that, uh, Lord, we just might learn something as we see our Savior at trial and the awful hatred that was against him. We just ask you, Lord, may our hearts never be like this. May you soften them. May the Holy Spirit help us to see who Jesus really is. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Most Americans are captivated by trials and courtroom procedures. There have been many famous trials that have caught our attention. You just think back a few years ago to the trial of O.J. Simpson, and the, it seems like the entire world, especially Americans, were just watching their televisions every day and listening for news about this trial, and it was one that really captivated the people. And you remember a defense attorney named Johnny Cochran made this famous statement. He said, if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. And you remember O.J. Simpson sitting there in the witness stand trying to put on these ill-fitting gloves. There are other trials that interest us. More recently, there's the trial, uh, maybe you followed this for a while, that's the trial of Amanda Knox, who in 2007 uh, was accused of killing her boyfriend in Italy. In 2011, she was, or 2009 rather, she was convicted of murder. And then in 2011, that verdict was overturned. And then just a year ago on Friday, she was convicted once again of murder. And now that trial is still going on in the Italian Supreme Court waiting for an appeal. Now some of the most popular shows on television are about courtrooms and trials. Some of you that are a little bit older, and most of us at Seaman here are, you may remember the television show Perry Mason. And then Perry Mason, you know, that show's been on television for years in reruns and all of that. And Perry Mason is that defense attorney who always got his client off by pinning the murder on someone else. And the poor guy that you really felt sorry for was the district attorney because he never found a case that he could win. And it makes you wonder how in 50 years he kept his job, but he still kept, he still kept on facing Perry Mason in every show. So our fascination with laws and lawyers and trials and courtrooms really ought to pique our attention when we come to a passage like this where we see a trial from the Bible and we see none other than the Lord Jesus Christ standing in a trial of men 
And everything that happens in this trial, uh, every semblance of justice here is overthrown, and a predetermined of victory, uh, a verdict of guilty, rather, is enforced upon him when there is really no evidence in the case. Now, in, in this case, the gloves definitely did not fit, but neither did the innocent go free. And the evidence of the trial didn't really matter because that outcome was decided before anyone ever entered into the courtroom. I mentioned a moment ago that there were two trials of Jesus. The first was an ecclesiastical trial. That's the trial that's held by the Jews, the the ones who had so much hatred for Jesus that they were just absolutely determined they had to get rid of him at any cost. And when I say Jews, I, I hope you understand that we're really not talking about the entire Jewish nation here because Jesus remained popular w- with the people. But we're talking about the Jewish leaders. They hated him. They wanted to see him put away. They were threatened by his popularity. His teachings were very dangerous to their power over the people. And to put it very simply, if Jesus was right, they were wrong. And if they were wrong, then they were obligated to change their ways and to follow him, to correct the mistakes, and to surrender to the authority of God's word. But these are men that are not going to do that. No, they're not going to surrender to the will of Christ. And so they pretended justice, and they were really hypocrites of the very worst sort. Now, surrendering to justice would have meant an effect on them that would hurt what they cared about most. And that was the unjust dealings that they had with the people at the temple. Now, the first thing that I'd like to consider today, and we are going to talk about this subject uh, next week as well, but the first thing we need to consider this morning is the adjustments to procedures. The Jewish courts were the fairest that you could find anywhere. And we could expect that that would be true because... Their procedures were taken from the laws that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament, laws given by the one who is perfect in justice. And so we would very well expect that whatever the Jews had been given, it would be the right thing, that any justice that's right and fair and equitable would have to be justice that comes from God himself. And so the Jewish system would be the model of perfect jurisprudence for any courts that are in the world. Now, from the time, though, that God gave the law to Moses to the time of Jesus, there had been many adjustments made to the law. And so, at this time of history, we're really not quite sure about all of the laws and all the procedures that would take place in a Jewish court. But we don't really have any reason to believe that the court wouldn't have been eminently fair. I mean, with with the high respect for the law that the Pharisees and others had, then we wouldn't expect that they would do anything other than to give Jesus the right kind of trial. That they would put in place all the procedures and keep them in place so it would be a fair trial, and that's what we expect. But we also know this about the scribes and the Pharisees, that they were often prone to change things, to mix things up, to make it appear what they did was legal. And we've seen them in the scriptures maneuver around things and change things to make things look legal by deceptive practices. And for that reason, there are some who think that, well, indeed, the trial of Jesus was legal according to the laws at the time. And really, it all comes down to this, that the high priest, the one who is the judge in the trial, has the ability to enforce whatever he wants to do if it's in the 
best interest of the people and the best interest of their religion. But regardless of that, of all the changes that could be made, we look at this trial of Jesus and, and we would have to say that there's no way to excuse this. This is an innocent man. There is no crime that's been committed, but he's already been convicted. He's already been convicted by the men who, who took him and arrested him. And long before this ever happened, they decided what Jesus, what was going to happen to Jesus. And so we find him here in a conspiracy, in the middle of a conspiracy and not a trial. It's a mock proceeding by a jury looking for criminal actions that aren't really there. And so in consideration of that, we, we want to take a look for just a moment, very briefly, at various adjustments that were made to procedures to allow the mock trial to continue. Now I'm going to mention these very briefly because they'll come up again as we go through the exposition of the verses. But if you want to take a few notes here, there are some inconsistencies and changes of proper procedures, and we'll run through these quite quickly. Now first, the, the judge and the jury were actually complicit in the charges that were made against Jesus. These are the ones that hatched the plan to arrest him in the garden. And some of the very ones that we see in the courtroom, the jury, you might say, the ones that you see in the courtroom were actually present at the time that Jesus was arrested. And then the judge sought witnesses against him. And he demanded that Jesus would give testimony against himself. And they had determined, as I said, the verdict before the trial ever began. And what they were seeking to do was to do something that would, or hope that something that would come along to uphold the verdict that had already been decided. Then they held this trial at an unlawful time. It was in the middle of the night. And then in the morning, they rubber-stamped that, that uh, decision with a, an official meeting of the Jewish Sanhedrin, who was the high court of the time. So these are all variations to the purpose of the courtroom. A judge and a jury is not supposed to decide what the charges are. They're to decide whether the accused is actually guilty and, and find out if he's guilty of the crime that has been charged. So there's none of them that can actually involve themselves in the arrest. I mean, we expect the, the judge and the jury to provide fairness, that there would be relief to the accused if he's proved innocent. And really, when you look at Jewish law, the courts were actually weighed heavily in favor of the one who's accused. And, and that's because they wanted to make sure that no one is unfairly convicted. And so they would demand time for the deliberations, give enough time for everything to be sought out, all the evidence to be laid out, and to be absolutely sure that if you're going to convict someone, especially in a capital case, that you have all the facts before you. There have to be two witnesses to convict a person. And it wasn't the responsibility of the court to find them. And then when two witnesses are presented, the testimonies have to agree. The details of everything that happened, the, t the date, the hour, all of that, the agreement has to be exact according to what they saw and they heard. And then the accused was never required to incriminate himself by his own testimony. And that's still practiced today. We're all familiar with Fifth Amendment rights that say you can't incriminate yourself. You don't have to incriminate yourself at a trial. So these are variations to the proceedings. And then also, in that capital case, the sentence cannot be carried out immediately. What they would do is they would wait at least two.
two days so that more evidence could be presented. If there was some other witness that hadn't stepped forward, that witness could come forward and speak for the accused. And so after the original trial, there's always a second meeting where the jury and the judge would sit there and and, uh, they would have the opportunity to change their mind. But interestingly, if you had voted to guilty in the original trial, in the second trial or the second hearing of it, you could not change your vote. You could not change your, uh, or you, you, would, you could change your vote, I should say. If you, if you declared the person to be guilty, you could change your vote to, to say that they're innocent. But if you said that they were innocent in the first time, then you can't change that to guilty. Now, what it's doing here is just making sure that no innocent person is wrongfully accused. And even we've heard this said many times that it's better that ten men that are guilty would go free rather than have one man who is innocent to be wrongly charged of a crime. So we see that procedures normally for the Jewish courts were geared maybe what we would say too far in favor of the accused. But there aren't any of those precautions that are observed in the trial of Jesus. And so everything that's fair and equitable was violated, which proves that there never was any other intent than to kill him. There is no other intent than to get rid of him. And we see that the guilty verdict was determined all the way back in chapter 12. There in verse number 14, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. So they've already held the council. The same people long before this, long before the arrest in the garden, had determined that he should be put to death. And the mock trial is the fruit of that previous decision. Now there's really... Nothing that more that can be deduced from this, from this action, than the Bible's clear declaration of the wicked state of the heart of man. That the heart is deceitfully wicked. That what the heart does, it fabricates, it, it, it hates, it lies, it wants to destroy, it's incensed forever and only inclined to evil. The Bible calls it being at enmity of God, at God, being hostile towards God. And that's the way every one of us is when we are born into this world. We're all hostile against God. And what God is showing us here in this wickedness and this rejection, the arrest and the trial and the execution of Jesus is a visual demonstration of a spiritual principle. That this is exactly what each and every one of us would do if Jesus were to live among us today. And that principle has not changed. The heart has not changed. People are against God. Even though God gives us our life, our health, He gives us our very existence, yet what do we find? There are crimes against God everywhere. There's no end to the crimes that are committed against God, the evil that goes on in the world. And that shows us that the depravity of the human heart is not going to change. That we're never going to be lifted out of this massive depravity, this massive morass of evil by our own design. And so coming to Christ could never be an act of the unregenerate. And that's because the human nature does not allow us to come to Christ. It can't come to Him because it will always do what it did to Jesus. Now the reality of that Bible truth It's shown in the way that the Jews overthrew every common decency, every semblance of fairness, every moral impulse to do what was right was set aside by these Jews in order that they might kill the most innocent of all, the one who knew no sin. 
And there isn't any other way to explain this but to agree with the Bible. And that is that all of us are on the wrong side of God. There's never a person been born that wasn't crossways to truth and righteousness. That's some of the adjustments to the procedures. It's the law that's overthrown in order to uphold a predetermined, predetermined verdict. So Jesus was not going to see justice here. The judge and the jury are complicit in the charges against him. Now the next thing that I'd like to talk to you about for a few minutes is the accusers for the prosecution. And I've already told you who they were. When you go to court, and I hope you don't have to go, but if you do end up in court, I would certainly hope and you hope that you have an impartial judge. You hope that you'll have a judge that will protect your rights, one that will weigh the evidence and will hand down a verdict based on the best evidence. But what you would never expect, you would never expect the judge to be the one who's in charge of the prosecution. That doesn't fit with any system of justice, at least not any that we think is fair and right. But that's precisely what happened to Jesus. The judge pushed forward for the prosecution and he sought evidence against Jesus and even manufactured the evidence that was against him. Now, I've told you that this is an ecclesiastical trial. It has three parts to it. But neither Matthew nor any of the other gospel writers put all three of those parts together for us. And so Matthew gives us two parts of it. He gives us the part where Jesus appeared before Caiaphas. And then at the beginning of chapter 27 in verse number 1, that's Jesus before the day court of the Sanhedrin. But there's another piece that takes place that's not recorded here in Matthew, but rather in the Gospel of John. So I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 18. And John is the only one that records this part of the trial. This is the step before Jesus was sent to Caiaphas. And here he appears before another high priest whose name is Annas. So John chapter 18 and verse 12. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest, that same year. Now this is a little bit confusing, it seems. And so what we have to do here is to explain a little bit about who these people are. And the explanation of this is a journey into the inner workings of organized crime. Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas. The text explains that he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. Now already you can see it's a family affair. And here we have Annas, who's the dawn of the crime family. Now, it was, it was the custom of the Romans to appoint the high priest in the different provinces that they had conquered. The, the priest of the people is a very powerful man. And so the Romans had taken over appointing the high priest of Israel. Now, you remember your Old Testament scriptures, how that the high priest is supposed to be descended from from Aaron. I mean, there's a succession, priest after priest after priest, that goes all the way back to Aaron. But at the time of Jesus, the Romans had taken over that authority, and they actually appointed the high priest because it was such a powerful position. They needed someone who was in favor of Rome. They need somebody who's, who's going to be good for Rome, and so they would appoint these, these high priests, and that was a political appointment. 
And since the high priest was so powerful among the people, Roman, the Romans did want those leaders that were favorable, so they chose a priest that's good for Caesar. Now, this means then that the high priest would fall to the sect of the Sadducees rather than the Pharisees. The Sadducees were more favorable to Rome. They were okay with Rome. They actually used Rome's laws and Rome's customs or whatever they could to help them to, to fill their own pockets. So they would choose the high priest and they would choose the main priest out of those who are the Sadducees. And the Pharisees wouldn't be chosen as priests because they never believed that the Romans had the authority to rule God's people. Now, since Israel didn't have a king of their own at that time, the one who held the high priest position has both authority religiously and politically. Annas was one of the most powerful high priests that Rome had ever appointed. And he became so powerful that he was actually no good for Rome any longer. They perceived him to be a threat. And so Rome had removed him and they put his son-in-law Caiaphas in his place. But you have to remember what I said a moment ago, that in Israel you have a high priest who's after, who's after Aaron, and they thought that a high priest is priest for life. That's what the Bible says. He's a priest for life. And so although Annas no longer had the position and the title of high priest, he was still very highly regarded among the people. And the important information about Annas is that he was the one who was the brains behind the shenanigans that took place at the temple. The thievery that went on there was supported by Caiaphas. He got a cut out of it all. But that whole get-rich scheme, that's the brainchild of Annas. Now at the temple they sold sacrificial animals. There was an exchange of currency. And this whole system at the time is known as the Bazaar of Annas. I'm not going to go into the details of, of this again. You can check all of that out in the sermons on Matthew 21. But I'll remind you of this, this part of it, that animals were sold for sacrifice at the temple. And if you brought your own animal as a sacrifice, then you were guaranteed that it was going to be turned down. The priest would have to inspect the animals. They approved them for sacrifice. And if you brought yours, yours is not going to get approved. So over time, the people said, well, there's no sense bringing our animals to the temple any longer. They're not going to prove them anyway. They're selling animals at the temple, so we'll buy our animals there. But the problem is that they sold them at exorbitant prices, five, six, seven times the going rate. And when they bought those animals, all the money was channeled into the coffers of Annas. And when the temple was destroyed many years later, it was found that Annas had amassed a fortune over a hundred million dollars. Folks, that's a lot of shekels. So here's the real problem that they have with Jesus. He went into the temple, and you remember this? Jesus went into the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers. He stopped the commerce that was going on there, and what that did was it affected Annas' profits. And Annas couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus called them a den of thieves. And the people were standing back there saying, yes, that's what they are. That's a den of thieves. Look at the way they've gouged us over all these years and stolen our money from us. So finally, someone has come along with God-given authority to challenge Annas, the bully, the godfather. And, and he was powerless to do anything about that. And so Annas just bitterly despised Jesus. And that fueled the fire of the unjust charges that are against him. As long as Jesus lived, 
the money train is interrupted. Now you can put it this way. You put it this way. There was a hit put out on Jesus. They tried to kill him many times before, you remember? They tried to get him, but they couldn't do it. And so here we are in this mock trial. It's their latest, greatest attempt to make unjust charges against him stick and to get rid of him. Well, the first stop in the trial is to go and see Annas. Annas is the godfather. Now, it's very likely that Annas and Caiaphas lived in the same place. There was a huge palace that was very close to the temple. And Annas lived in one wing of the palace, and Caiaphas lived in the other. And they were just separated by a common courtyard. And this helps to explain how that uh, Peter was able to go to the house of Caiaphas and also be at the same place where Annas was. He followed there afar off, and he ended up there. And so Annas occupies one wing of the palace, Caiaphas occupies the other. Now, Jesus then was sent to Annas first because he's the one that is supposed to establish the crime. He, he's the one who's slick. He's the one who's experienced. He knows how these political things work. And if you look here at, at John 18 and verse number 19, we find Annas questioning Jesus. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Now, there is disagreement here about what high priest this means. Is this Annas or is it Caiaphas? And that's because of verse 24, if you'll look there. Now, Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, the argument here hinges on one little word. It's the word sent, as to whether that Greek word means that, it, that Jesus had already been sent to Caiaphas. And in that case, verse, verse number 19 would not refer to Annas, but to Caiaphas. Now, that, that's an argument that's too, too involved for us to do in a Sunday morning sermon. So just let me say this to you, that it's more likely when you study it out that Annas is the one who's intended. And that makes much more sense because Annas is the one who's the head of the Jewish mafia. And so Annas began to question Jesus about his followers and his doctrine. And he was obviously hoping that what Jesus would do, he would say something that's self-incriminating. And so from top to bottom, we have a violation of procedure. And this line of questioning continued until you get into Caiaphas and the next part where it appears there. But the trouble with this is that Jesus knows what Annas is up to. Here you have Jesus who can read minds. And he knows what's in the heart of man. And I'll tell you folks, you are at a decided disadvantage when you face Jesus. He already knows what you're thinking. He knew what Annas was thinking. So Jesus would never answer his questions about doctrine. Instead, what he did was he deferred to witnesses that had heard him at the temple. Now, if you look at verse 18 in John, uh, verse 20 rather, in John 18, Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. Well, Annas wasn't up for that. He knew what the people were going to say. So what Annas hoped for is that Jesus would answer the questions and he would slip up and Jesus would confess to something. He would incriminate himself. That makes no witnesses necessary. Now think about what's going on here. Annas is still a very powerful man. He's Marlon Brando with the puffy cheeks. 
And he's sitting there and he's questioning Jesus. And Jesus is bound and he's probably haggard and he's dirty. He's been beaten around by those who arrested him. All night long he'd been writhing on the ground in prayer. So he's dirty and he's beaten as he appears before, before Annas. And so Annas is standing there, and, and Annas is there in his priestly robes. Annas is decked out, and he's standing up there, or he's listening there. And what's happened to Annas is he's been outfoxed by Jesus. Jesus turned the law back on Annas. He's outfoxed by him. And so now he's very angry about this. He's infuriated about what Jesus has done. And the anger begins to rise in his face and he turns red. And, and they could see that in his face. And he considered that, that this is a contempt not to get the answers that the high priest wants. You're not allowed to do that. And so they could tell that Annas was irritated by it. And so one of the officers just reached over and he swatted Jesus in the face with the palm of his hand. And in John 18.22 it says, And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? And Jesus had an answer for that. Jesus answered him in verse 23, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Well, there we see Jesus challenging Annas on the law again. He's there with no charge, no reason for the arrest. He'd spoken nothing at all to incriminate himself. And so what right did they have to abuse him? Well, they have no right to abuse him unless they've already determined the verdict. They already said he's guilty. So we keep seeing these violations of justice. Annas tried. He couldn't do anything with Jesus. Here he is before Don Carleone, the Godfather high priest, and Annas is just incensed at the impudence of Jesus. I mean, this, this, this is the guy who gives the order and you get snuffed out. But Jesus cared nothing at all for that because he knew Annas is not going to do anything. Annas has to make it all look legal. If he doesn't, the people are set on an uproar if they perceive that justice hasn't been done. So Annas had no choice. He's stuck. So what he has to do is to kick Jesus over to another part of the system. There is no indictment yet. And this leaves Annas looking foolish and powerless. So next, Jesus is sent to Caiaphas. He's the official high priest. Now there we return to Matthew 26 and verse number 57. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So they took him to Caiaphas. It wasn't far to go. All they have to do is walk across the common area to get to Caiaphas' side of the palace. And so it wasn't far. That makes verse number 58 work with Peter there. He's in the common area. He's sitting with the servants as Jesus is transferred from Annas to Caiaphas. Well, now, here Jesus stands before Caiaphas. He, he's the high priest. He was appointed by Pilate in, or by the Romans in AD 18, and he served until Pilate was deposed in AD 36. That means that he served longer than any other of the high priests under Rome, and the only reason that he could was because he was very good for the Romans. And so to survive that long, he had to be shrewd, he had to be a conniving little weasel, he had to have no scruples. S. Lewis Johnson described Caiaphas this way. Caiaphas was a cold-blooded cynic, a hypocrite, a man who knew exactly what he wanted and did not mind using spiritual power to accomplish it. 
Now, what a man that Caiaphas was. He's a long list, in the long list of false prophets and false priests of religion. And false Christianity has plenty of these as well. I mean, we have faith healers, we have popes, we have religious charlatans that have no scruples at all. They don't care who they deceive, they just use religious power to get rich. And Baptists aren't any stranger to it either. Pastors will use the power of the pulpit to bully people and to build their empires, and the quest is to enlarge their coffers, not those of the Lord. So here, it's Jesus before Caiaphas, who now has the very same intent as Annas. He has the verdict already in hand. Now he has to find a way to make it work. Now, we would look at this, and we think how ironic that it is, that here we have the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the great high priest who's not of earthly generation. He, he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has an eternal priesthood. Jesus is the one who is full of grace and truth. And he's standing here before Caiaphas, who is a pretender. He's a high priest that's been appointed by the heathen Romans. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's perfect and innocent. But Caiaphas is ungracious. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a cheat. He's unjust. He's guilty of conspiracy. And what he wants to do is to kill what the Bible calls the consolation of Israel. The very one who's going to lift them out of this sinful condition that they're in and save them. But let me show you something very interesting about Caiaphas. I want you to go to John chapter 11. And remember that this is the chapter where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that miracle was one of the crowning moments of Jesus' ministry. And that's because there was no way to deny this, that something that uncommon, something uncommon, unheard of, something just totally impossible, an impossible thing has happened. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead for four days. Now, some people say not freshly dead. It really doesn't make a whole lot of difference how long you've been dead. But he wasn't freshly dead. He'd been dead for four days. He'd been dead so long that his body began to stink. He's in a state of decomposition. And there is Jesus standing before his grave with a stench of death in that grave. And Jesus said, let him out. Open up the stone. Open up the grave. Roll the stone away. Let Lazarus come out. And he commanded him to come out. And folks, that is a great picture. It's a picture of what happens spiritually to the person who's dead and trespasses and sin. He has to be called to life by God. But Lazarus came out of the tomb, and there he is still wrapped in the grave clothes. He still has the stench of death upon him. And Jesus removed the stench of death. He brought him back to life, and he said to the people, Loose him and let him go. Unwind him, take the grave clothes off of him, and let him go. And so now you have Lazarus, who is a living, breathing testimony of the power of Almighty God residing in Jesus Christ. And here is something that the Jewish leaders did not know what to do about. How are we going to handle the situation about Lazarus? And so the Bible says they wanted to kill Lazarus also. Which wasn't a very good idea, because Jesus would raise him from the dead again, and that only makes it worse. So what are they going to do about Lazarus? They don't, have any, they don't have anything they can do with him. Now we go to verse 47 in John chapter 11. And this is, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And so here's the discussion that goes on. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. 
If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then, from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Now, at first, that sounds like a great prophecy. Caiaphas said, it's expedient. One man should die for the people, so the whole nation will not perish. This is a donkey prophesying. Because Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying. Oh yes, Jesus would be a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. Jesus would die to save them. But that's not Caiaphas' meaning nor his intent. He meant that Jesus must die because he's causing division. The Romans don't like division. And if Jesus is not stopped, then the Jews are in big trouble. Caiaphas can't keep the peace. Caiaphas can't keep things in order. Rome doesn't like that. And so if something doesn't happen to Jesus, then everybody's going down. So it's better for Jesus to die. So you see in verse 53, they took counsel together to put him to death. This is a week before they arrested him. So once again, we see him in the courtroom. There's a predetermined verdict. There is no real trial. It's a mockery of justice. The innocent will be murdered. Now, one more thing to notice before we finish today. And that is that all of this took place at night. The assembly, the high priest, the other priests, the elders, the scribes, they met at night. Basically, what we're talking about here is the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. They met at night. There were 70 people that were on this court. The high priest made 71. They needed that odd number in case there was a tie, and the high priest would vote to break the tie. But there's only 23 that actually have to be present to reach a quorum to conduct business. And so they're meeting at night, which means that not all of them would have been able to be present. Not likely that they would be. So we think that probably Joseph of Arimathea, the one who claimed the body of Jesus later, he wasn't in on this meeting. Probably Nicodemus who assisted Joseph of Arimathea with the body, he was neither at this meeting. So it's a nighttime meeting, and the reason is it's clandestine. A nighttime court is not honest. Darkness is a cover for evil, and the Jews believe that. And so with intention, they would never meet at night. That, that says there's skullduggery here, there's sneakiness going on. This is cloak and dagger stuff. So they're not going to meet at night. They knew it was wrong for them to do this, but the cause is too great. They, they have to do something about Jesus. They can't kill him without a just reason. And so they settle for the fakery. They manufacture the reasons. And that's the part we're going to talk about next time when we come back. So these are very intensely wicked men. And they're going to kill an innocent man. And that needs to be a warning to us about what's in the heart you see, Jesus is an eternity of steps ahead of all of us. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knew what they, what they would do. 
and he let them take him without putting up a defense. We think about that. Why didn't he put up a defense? I mean, who can stand against Jesus? You can't go toe-to-toe against him. I said he already knows what's in your heart. He already knows everything in advance. He reads minds. So why not put up a defense? He's so far ahead of them. You know why he didn't? Because it wouldn't do any good. They weren't interested in the truth. They already knew the truth. They knew he hadn't done anything. They weren't interested in anything that he had to say. It's like Jesus said in the seventh chapter of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount as he's finishing up there. He said, don't even bother to cast your pearls before swine. People don't want to hear the truth. They don't care about the truth. These men didn't care. What do you learn from that? You learn that God knows you. You learn that God knows every move that you're going to make. He knows that you're not going to change. He knows that you can't change. He knows that you will not come to him. So what did he do? He came to you. He knows knows you're not coming to him, so he came to you. And here is Jesus Christ, even in our midst today, coming to us with grace and mercy, with truth of salvation for every one of us that sinned against God. He knows our heart. He knows that we're not going to come and so he woos us. He draws us and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to bring us to God the Father. So what Jesus has done, he's provided a way for the guilty to escape. There's grace to give and he can save you from the wrath of God. And you need to be aware of this as well, that he'll save you from yourself. Jesus reached down, will reach down and take hold of you because what you have done is murdered him in the courtroom of your heart. You've already found him guilty. And what Jesus will do is to save you from that mocking injustice. And he'll save you from a verdict that does not condemn him. It condemns you. Here's what we need to remember. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is all in the Lord. And the Word of God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no other hope but Him. Pray to God, pray to God that He'll touch your heart with His gospel and bring you to Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your Word and uh, unusual message for us to bring today and talk about all these things that happen in trials. But it does point out for us how wicked the heart is and Lord, how gracious that you are, that you came to us and you gave us the truth and you showed us who you are, a a fact that we could never recognize on our own. Our, Our eyes have been blinded by the world, been blinded by Satan, been blinded by our own deceit. But Lord, you're the one who removes all of that and opens up to us the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, you'd open someone's heart today to the gospel and save them from their sins. And then for each of us that are Christians, may we be grateful, eternally grateful. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls because we could never do this on our own. So, Lord, bless us. Help us speak to your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.